Hi, my name's Andy Chamberlain, and this is the Creative Writer's Tool Belt, the podcast that gives you practical, accessible advice that you can apply straight away to your own writing. You can find out more at my website, andrewjchamberlain.com, where you'll also find out about the Creative Writer's Tool Belt handbook, which condenses all of the very best advice and insight from my expert guests and me in one place. I hope you enjoy this episode of the Creative Writer's Tool Belt podcast, and it's helpful to you on your writing journey. And welcome to episode 138 of the Creative Writers Tool Belt podcast. In this episode, I talk to Dr. Pamela Fernandez. Pamela is an author, a physician, and a medical writer. She was born and raised in Kuwait, and she has lived in India, and she graduated from Angeles University College of Medicine in the Philippines in 2007. Soon after that, she started a career as a medical writer, and she has an active interest in women's health and well-being. And in her latest book, Painting Kuwait Violet, she explores some of those issues related to the lives of women in the Middle East. In our conversation, Pamela and I explore issues like using settings that we've actually lived in to bring authenticity to our work, writing in less popular genres, and how to turn your own area of expertise into an opportunity to write non-fiction. I hope you enjoy listening to our conversation. Here it is. So, Pamela, welcome to the Creative Writers Toolbelt podcast. Thank you, Andy, for having me here. I'm so excited and nervous to be on your podcast. <laughs> but uh, I am an author, a doctor, and a yes. medical writer. I was born in Kuwait, and we fled the first Gulf War on the last ship from Kuwait to India. For people who don't know when that was, because some people won't, can you tell us when? What, what year would that have been? That was 1991. Uh, that was when the first Gulf War was, yeah, when George Bush decided uh, he was going to attack Saddam after he attacked Kuwait. And a lot of immigrants were left behind, and uh, we were some of the last to leave because we thought it would be over in a few days, but it didn't happen. Mm. And uh, we went to India. I was there for five years before our family returned to Kuwait. And um, most of my childhood was there. And then I went to college to the Philippines to study medicine. Okay. And then I, we, I came back to India to practice. So I was working there and I traveled to Oman and Czech Republic, Norway, and uh, recently, just five days ago, to Montreal, Canada. <laughs> And this was this was in in connection with your work. Then was it this traveling, or was this, or was it because you would just enjoy traveling around? Well, both actually. I traveled okay. Oman a bit for work, um, mm-hmm. India, various cities for work. Um, I was always uh, sent to different places to do camps and you know preventive checks and things like that. Uh, as far as uh, Czech Republic is concerned, I went there because I have an uncle who's a Carmelite priest. And uh, okay. we went there to, yeah, to uh, the Infant Jesus Church there. And I love traveling. Okay. So if you think back to all of these different times, um, what, were the, what were the formative cultural influences on you? Uh, that, that could be film or TV or books, or maybe it's something. I mean, you're, you're, you're in a pretty unique situation in that you've spent your childhood in different places. So I'd be interested to hear what, what kind of cultural influences had an impact on you as you were growing up. Well, my cultural influences have largely been Middle Eastern. You know, even today, uh, I identify mostly with a Middle Eastern mindset. I mean, I dress very conservatively. I I, yes. I find even wearing short sleeves too much skin. <laughs> yes. And my makeup is always eye heavy with all the coal and mascara. It's it's. I never focus on the lips or any other part of my face as much as I do in the eyes because that's just how I grew up and what I saw. Okay. And so my cultural influences were mostly Kuwait. We didn't have a TV growing up. We just had one and it was always local television. So everything we saw was Turkish, Kuwaiti, uh, Emirati, you know. 
Mm. And that's kind of like my identity. And maybe a, a little bit of the literature has come through the British education. We had a very strong British education. Okay. So my literature has always been uh, very English. Like we read Coleridge and Wordsworth when we were in the sixth grade. Um, wow, okay. <laughs> yeah, and my favorite author, George Eliot, I read her when I was in the seventh grade. So a lot of our literature has come through the, the English background. Yes. And uh, the authors I've read have always been very English, very British. When I was in the seventh grade, Arundhati Roy won her booker, you know, and she was the first Indian author who won a booker, first female Indian author. And I will never forget because um, my teacher came the next day to school and she always thought I would be an author. And she said, you have to read this book. Mm. You know, this, is, this is an amazing book. It's full of similes and metaphors. And we were learning about it at the time. And I came home and told my mother and she said, that is not the book for you. <laughs> so, so I never read that book till, till I was 29 because I always thought that is not the book for me. But um, was, it, my, was it the book for you, having read it at 29? Yes, yes. It was it is, <laughs> It is an amazing book because it's so full of prose. Um, I don't think I'd ever be able to write like this, <laughs> but, but it is a beautiful book. It's very rich. It's very dramatic. And you can literally feel Kerala. I've never been to Kerala. Yes. You can smell Kerala. You can mm. feel the rain. It's just beautiful. It's beautiful. Can you remind us of the, the title and the author of that book then again? Yeah. Arundhati Roy wrote The God of Small Things. Right. Uh, it was her first book and she won the booker for that book. So. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> <laughs> so thinking about all the traveling that you've done and living in different places and different cultures and countries, how, how do you think that has influenced your writing? To be honest, when you go to a different place, you experience the place differently. So when you research a place and write about it, it is very, very different. Mm. But when you live in a place, you experience the culture, you see how they celebrate their festivals, what food they eat, what spices mm -hmm. they use, the music they hear. And so all that has influenced my writing, especially when I write about Asian and uh, Middle Eastern books. They always have this, the flavor of the food, the, the scent of the spice and, you mm -hmm. know, the type of clothes they wear. So that shows in the book and it makes the writing very authentic. It makes it very... Uh, very real. It's not something that's fabricated. You don't have to worry about, oh, whether I made this up, whether people will think it's real, whether I'll be found out, because you know it's real. Mm. So traveling and living in different cultures makes the writing more more realistic, more true in that sense. Mm. So I, I guess it, it is that difference, isn't it, between being in a place and really absorbing it on the one hand and then just looking it up on Wikipedia yeah. as, as the other extreme, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. Now you've written a book which is based in, in Kuwait and you've mentioned Kuwait uh, and, and you've said it's a Middle Eastern country. Could you tell us a little bit about the book and perhaps as well going back to what you've just said just a moment ago, how much of the, the setting is based on things that you directly experienced and that you, you witnessed yourself there? Well, the book is about an Indian maid who travels to Kuwait and starts working as a maid, except that she's a college graduate and she's highly educated and mm. this is not her, her job, but she does it because she has to survive and uh, support a family back home. And the book actually focuses on this, the identity of women and the crisis that women face on both sides of the divide. You know, whether you're rich as a Kuwaiti woman, whether you're poor as an immigrant, the culture, the climate there is such that women either way are, are going through a hard time and, and how these women band together to help each other out. So that's what the book is about. 
Uh, a lot of the setting of the book is what I've experienced and absorbed through life. You know, I didn't have mm-hmm. to really read up on on writing this book because I knew this stuff. I read this in papers. I've been growing yes. up listening to them. Um, I've known maids. Uh, I know some of the people who've worked there. So a lot of it has been through experience. A lot of it has been through reading what has really happened there. Mm. Uh, it didn't require too much research. It was It was just, I think subconsciously, it just all came through. So that's an interesting point that, that you make there because it, and I've heard other authors uh, allude to this, that actually some of what appears in your book you very consciously put in there but some of it is almost subconscious in that that, that there's so much that you've absorbed that it just it just filters into it seeps into the book as you write it would would you agree with that oh yeah definitely actually i think uh, in every book we tend to bleed a little of ourselves Mm. and my mother is afraid that if if people really knew me i mean the people who really do know me they could piece together my entire life through (laughs) my books (laughs) So she's very scared that if if the right person reads these books, they'd figure me out. And maybe it's true because there's a little bit about my own life in each of the books, maybe one or two experiences that I write. Like, for example, in Painting Quay Violet, there's this story about, uh, you know, her going through school and, and, and having friends and not having friends and how she was not picked or whatever. And it's some of my own experience. So... Mm, it's just mm. that everywhere through the books, we tend to bleed a little bit and yes. be careful. Yeah. You you do, but I th- I think you you almost can't help it as a writer, can you? That you you've got to give a bit of yourself to a book, perhaps for it to to really be authentic. I don't know. Yeah, that's true. I I think we have to write things that are realistic, and part of it is writing something that that you have experienced, you know, and that's what makes books so rich because we write what we go through, and everybody has a story in that sense. So now you've described. Middle Eastern and Asian fiction as an unpopular genre. And I wondered if you could just tell us a little bit about what you meant by this when you said it. Well, uh, to start with, when I was doing this uh, book's promotion, I started writing a post called uh, 30 Best Middle Eastern Books. Mm -hmm. When I finally finished the post, it was 18 because I couldn't find that many Middle Eastern books. And a lot of the books that had been written um, about the Middle East were about authors who came from America and the UK and stayed for a while in the Middle East and left. Mm. They weren't really Middle Eastern authors or people who had spent, you know, a big chunk of their lives there. Yes. So I think to a great extent, it's very hard for Middle Eastern authors to break into the market. One, because... It's not a very popular genre, and I'll tell you why. Because people are not very comfortable with reading about a culture that they're unfamiliar with, especially a culture that is very negative or a culture that is very different from the one they know. Mm. Now, at present, I'm pitching a book where I talk about, you know, the scent of jackfruits in in Bombay, and almost every beta reader that I've had says, "What do jackfruits look like?" And you want to pull your hair out because jackfruits <laughs> are, you know, universal in India, but People yes. don't know what jackfruits are. They don't know the smell of saffron. So it's hard for uh, Western audiences to understand Middle Eastern um, books. And multicultural fiction, I think only of late has picked up with, you know, crazy rich Asians and all this yes. stuff. Yes. But but it's it's been unpalatable for a while. I mean, people don't want to see the negatives of uh, the Middle Eastern culture, which largely have been true. But th- there's that stigma that's attached to it and and that's why i think it's probably hard to get into that market yeah it it is i guess a little bit alien to a lot of western readers but it it feels to me as if that trend is changing and there is a hunger for 
a very authentic telling of that those cultures of Middle Eastern life, of Asian life. Um, and as you say, maybe not a tale from somebody who's visited, but somebody who is, is their lives are woven into that culture. They've they've yeah. been there a long time. That's true. Yeah. So I'm wondering that there may be people who are listening to this who are writing in that genre or certainly would be writing in what they would consider to be an unpopular genre. And I wondered if you've got any advice for people who are, they're writing a story and they're writing it because they really feel they want to write that story, but they're, they're just a little bit worried that the context of it or, or the genre or whatever won't be terribly popular. What, what advice would you give to, to writers in that situation? My first bit of advice would be definitely balance things out with the positives. You know, it's very mm. easy to focus on the negative. Like, for example, in Middle Eastern fiction, let's be honest, Middle East fiction is mostly colored by war. You read any book, um, war is almost universal because those countries have been colored by war. And so you have these issues that are universal about, you know, the freedom of religion, women's yes. rights. So my advice would be focus on the positives as well. You know, balance whatever is out to make it more palatable to Western audiences, to make it palatable to audiences who don't know anything about the culture. Mm. Mm. So talk about the food, talk about the, the, the clothing and, you know, the good things that are there. And maybe that would make people appreciate whatever difficult genre you're writing better or more acceptable. Now, what you've just said there makes me wonder whether you can extend that to the characters as well, because certainly the, the characters, the main character in your book doesn't have it easy. It isn't all good at all, is it? Um, is, there a, is there any way in which you have tried to, to bring that more positive context into your own work? Oh, yeah. When I started off with the book, I mean, we had a different ending. We had, um, I was more vicious when I started with the book. <laughs> okay. But gradually, you know, my editor said, you know, we need to make this positive and Sabah as a query needs to be made likable. And I think that's, if you see reviews, I mean, people always say, you know, I, I didn't find this character likable. I didn't find this person um, nice at all. And that mm. changes the entire review. So you need to make people nicer. And I ended up, making a lot of the Kuwaiti characters really nice and and homey and <laughs> all those things. So it it does, you have to keep that in mind and balance them out. And I think that's true because all of us have shades of gray. Uh, we're yes, all, true. Yeah, we're not just all black and white. And we do have those in-between things. And I think that I, to add that makes it better. Now, your book is, it is a story, but it's also a social commentary, I think. It is is—it is a comment on what's going on um, and a protest, I think, in a way, at the conditions in the country in which it's set. Now, I, I wondered if you could just talk to us a little bit about how you combine story with comment and social comment and, 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 and an element of protest so that the reader can engage with both of those aspects. How did you, how did you manage to do that in your work? Well, to be honest, I'm not trying to be an instrument of uh, social change with this book. Okay. Because Kuwait has changed a lot, you know, since the 1980s. Um, and you, you see Kuwait has come a long way. I was in Kuwait two, I think one or two years ago. And the number of Kuwaiti women who are now nurses and doctors and in mm. banks working, it's just amazing. And I think change has been slow to come, but it has happened. And uh, I think a lot of women are now working. They're liberated. They, they're not all always dressed in black. They're wearing modern clothes. Um, so it's, it's changing and it has changed. So in a way, yes, the book also highlights uh, the conditions of uh, women workers and workers in general. But I think that issue is also slowly being resolved 
as we've seen with the uh, home ministry. But when you combine it in a story, I think you have to think about what is going to make people turn pages. Yes. And that is the first thing my editor said, you know, this is a women's fiction book, but how are we going to make people turn pages and read page after page after page? And so he added uh, this thriller element. And my book actually is pure women's fiction, but it's got this this edgy feel to it because my editor, John DeBoer, he said, we need to give it this page turner ability. And, and yes. that's how I think you can combine your social protest or whatever you want to do by thinking, okay, what is what is it that readers are going to do? I mean, what is it that's going to make them go on read and read and read? Mm, mm. And then, you know, put those two together and then make it a story. Okay. Now, you, you've referred there a little bit to uh, some of the changes that have happened in Kuwait in the last, say, 20, 30 years. In terms of, of your book, do the characters develop as well? And how, how do you manage that? How do you manage the development of characters in your work? So my mistake with this book was when I started writing it, I only knew how Violet was going to develop the main character. So I mm. knew she was going to be a maid who ends up being a permanent worker and you know liberated with a happy story ending. But what I didn't know was where the other characters were going. I had no idea where this Kuwaiti woman, her boss, and the other mm. maids, where their stories were heading. And I think that okay. was a big mistake. Because when you write, you need to have each character's arc ready before you can write a novel. Mm. And that's very important because you know where you're going then. Um, for Painting Quaid Violet, I think I finished with about 90,000 words, which was, uh, I think, 10,000 over the top. And by the time we sat down with my editor and we pared it down, it was somewhere around 80. So this was entirely by uh, culling the characters' arcs, you know, giving them direction, more focus. Mm. So I worked on developing them after I wrote the story. So there was a lot that got taken out. And my advice would be to people is that you develop the character before you start and that mm. way the, the, the roadmap is more clear as you write. So so you're talking there in context of, of the planning and preparation that you do before you yeah. before you start writing. <laughs> yeah, I think that's that's very important, having character arcs. I mean, I always when I read it, I thought, Oh my god, this is who's got the time for this? <laughs> 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 but now that I've I've gone on through several books, I realize it's important to have those before you can, yeah. because that way you'd be actually saving more time. So could you give us perhaps an example of how one of your characters has actually changed during the course of the book? So just give us an example of, of how a, a developing character arc might work. So um, in terms of character arc, Saba was this Kuwaiti employer and... Mm. When I first started with her, I, I labeled her as a tyrant. You know, I, I made her this this vicious Kuwaiti woman who would stop at nothing. And she was very negative in, in, in mm. the beginning. And by the end of the book, I had made her this unforgiving, cold-hearted, bloodthirsty woman who would do anything to, you know, save her son. But as we went through the edits, I realized she had to be more human. There had to be a reason why she became this woman, her divorce with her husband, the fact that he had married uh, another woman, you know, and the fact that there, men are allowed four wives and, and all this affecting her and making her the woman that she was, uh, her need for success. And so all the reasons that make a person do what they do had to get added to the story. Mm. And that's how the character developed and changed over mm. time. Now, that's interesting what you said there. I want to explore that a little bit 
further because it sounds as if you haven't just simply got a character arc in the sense of the character started here and they ended there, but actually you're building in and explaining the reasons why things happen. So I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about what you learned in terms of that, in terms of giving characters context and the reason for their the change that they go through. Well, you have to sprinkle details. And I learned this only with, with painting quite violet because I'd made so many mistakes. So there's a reason for everything. It's, it's like, um, you know, Chekhov's gun. You have a gun, you have to fire it. Or if yes. the gun has been fired, you need to show it in the first instance why the gun was there. Or if you forgot to place it there, you had to put it there. So the thing with the character with Saba as well, why she did what she did had to come into the story. But then I had to change and remove things that were already there. There was just backstory and fill it with what Saba became and how she became there. The fact that the war happened, the fact that, you know, and I had not added these details because I thought, you know, for me, I've lived through the war. It's, it, 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 it comes across as no big deal, but it is a big deal because not a lot of people have lived through that experience. So no. the fact that she went through the war, she lost family um, and all those things had to be added to the backstory. And so the backstory changes the structure changes, the the sprinkling of details in the characters' lives. Yes. That has to happen constantly through the story as you build a character. And and so each chapter then changes accordingly. I think this is an essential element to developing a character, to, as you say, to sprinkle the details in, to give them a context, to give them motivation and reasons for why they are as they are and reasons for how they change. So I want to um, move on now. You mentioned earlier on, that your editor had encouraged you to put uh, the things in the novel that kept people turning the pages and put a little bit of, of uh, tension in it or, or, or whatever. Um, I wondered if you could tell us a little about how you maintain that in the book, that tension and that excitement that's going to keep the reader with you and push them all the way through to the end. Well, for this, I would suggest uh, reading the novel very personally, you know, and reading it as a reader would and not as a writer would. When I read, and I, I'll be honest, I edited Painting Quay Violet more than 16 times, the entire novel, again and again and again, because every mm. time it was so, uh, the suggestions were so different. And every single time I read it, I read it as a reader first. And I thought, you know, what is getting me excited about this? And what is mm. making me feel like this is, this is boring stuff? So there are a number of things there that I added later, like my, my own personal experiences, which would give me tension. Like I remember there's a scene there where uh, Violet is in the basement and there's, there's a sound, an eerie sound there and she jumps because it's just a cat, but it's what I experienced. And I thought, wow, this is a good thing when it happened to me, I thought, you know, to add in a book and it would keep me excited. It would keep me tensed. And so Mm. I added it to the book much later when we were editing. So when you read as a reader and think, okay, what can I add to to keep that tension? What, what, is it, what is it that's getting me excited? What is it that's getting me bored? And chop off the stuff that is boring you and, and mm. the stuff or add stuff that personally would excite you. And that, I think, gives it a very uh, edgy feel when you add your own personal experiences. Because, well, as humans, we all have the same, same feelings. So you could invoke those feelings in other people too. One of the comments you made there was um, you talked about reading your work as a reader and not as a writer. I wonder if you could elaborate just a little bit on, on that. How does a writer read something versus how does a reader read something? 
Okay, so I do this professionally in the sense that, you know, when I'm trying to learn from another writer, like there are times where I will read Nora Roberts or Lisa Klepis because I want to study the style. And so I will read very clinically, like I will read, okay, what's the character doing? How's the structure? Yes. What is the voice? What is the tense? What is the style? Whether there was backstory here, whether it was at the end. So that's a different type of reading. But when I'm reading for pleasure, I just start with, oh my goodness, you know, I'm setting myself in this, this scene. I'm feeling what the author is experiencing. I'm there with her. I'm there with the character. And so that is a different reading. And I would suggest every time you edit, you know, read for writing and editing separately and read for reading your story separately. So read as a reader first mm. and then see if you're enjoying your own story. And if you're mm. not enjoying your story, it means you've got to edit a lot more. You've got to add things that personally excite you or personally um, cut things that personally bore you. Mm. And then read separately as a writer that is editing the work. So I don't know if, how to explain this, but it's, it's a different reading when you're reading mm. for pleasure. And so the first sure. read has to be a pleasure read. Okay. Well, are there any particular things that you like trends that you found when you said you went through 16 revisions of this manuscript what is it that occurs to you that you found that by the end of it you had taken out generally and what is it that you found that you'd put more of in for starters i think backstory i had a lot of backstory i mean i had written a lot about the war because first of all when i first started writing people didn't even know where kuwait was I had to tell people that it was a country in the Middle East. So right. I, I started yeah. writing where Kuwait was, yeah. how many people it had, um, you know, all those minute details that were actually unnecessary. So I had a lot of backstory. And then I had very little dialogue and very little action that was starting in chapter one. And one of the things that came across with every successive edit was, you know, the action is on page one, that's where you start. And so we open with this scene of murder instead of mm. backstory mm. Wait and the war and all that mm. stuff. Mm. So that was how I think the story got more streamlined. It's interesting hearing this from my point of view, because I'm working on a book, which I'm going to be releasing in August and in one of the iterations of that, one of the revisions, basically I took out about 10 or 12,000 words from the start, um, just cut them completely and started with what was my original chapter five, which is where the action starts. Mm. Um, and there's a few bits of that initial, and that was all kind of backstory and setting things up that first part. And I, I've sprinkled that into the rest of the book, but it, it's as you say, the the action really has to start on page one, doesn't it? To really kind of grab people and get them involved right from the beginning. Yeah. And I, I'm actually feeling sorry that you had to cut those many words because it hurts, you know, when you write, you write 12,000 words. <clears throat> oh, thank you for your compassion. It hurts. I mean, you don't want to, in fact, I would even find a place to put it in elsewhere. Well, it, I, it was a useful lesson for me. Uh, and it's a it's a good lesson for anybody I think who's who's yeah. listening to this is that it's that the there's a there's an old writer's phrase which you've probably heard called "Kill your darlings <laughs> yeah it's not that you it, it is that there are bits of prose that you write uh, and there are things that you write for your work and you love them and then you you can read them back and they're just beautiful descriptions of setting or whatever else, but you know that they need to go um because they just don't fit with the story, so when they don't fit with the story, 
Uh, if they fit with the story, great, keep them. They're lovely. But if they don't fit, if they have to go, then they have to go. Yeah. Um, not that you just delete them, but you put them in another file somewhere and just <laughs> save them for another day. Um, yeah. Now, I want to uh, change tack slightly because you by profession are a doctor. And first of all, I want to just uh, explore a little bit about what that actually means. So are you, are you in general practice or do you specialize in a certain way? What do you do now in terms of your profession as, as a doctor? So <clears throat> I've actually graduated and I've been practicing in family med for the last, I think, 10 years. So I moved to the United States so that I could get into residency training. Mm. And I was hoping to go into something that was other than family med, but it looks like I'm going to go back to family med. <laughs> so that's what I've been doing of late. I've been volunteering here um, till I get into residency training um, because I wanted to be here instead of back home in India. And I've been very involved with women's health, uh, preventive health, mm -hmm. uh, traveling to rural parts of the... I'm very active in the rural areas. I somehow feel the patients there... They, um, they tend to listen more and then practice what you tell them to do. Whereas uh, in the urban areas, it's very hard to get people to say, you know, stop smoking or whatever, whatever. Mm. Everyone mm. too educated to listen to you. Mm. So um, I've been involved in rural health, telemedicine, um, a lot in back home in India. Th those have been like my, my pet projects. Mm. I, I will come back to this, to, to some of your other freelance medical writing work in a moment, but I want to just ask you um, again, more generally with your latest book, what were the other struggles and challenges that you had in writing it? What would you say the main things were? Painting with Violet was the second book I ever wrote. Okay. I wrote it 10 years ago. And okay. at that time, the climate wasn't right for multicultural fiction. It wasn't right for women's issues. It wasn't right for a number of reasons. Nobody would touch that book. Nobody wanted to hear about the Middle East. Um, it was just something that nobody wanted. And I struggled quite a bit because I thought, you know, this is good stuff. I mean, it's got good setting. It's got everything mm. that mm. in a book. Now, and what was going wrong? And, and I didn't know um, that all this was required. Like you, you had to have... Um, people who want multicultural fiction and fast forward 10 years later now you have own voices you have diverse voices you yes have yeah all these things so publishing has changed so much in 10 years and uh three years ago we had this uh diverse voices uh pit mad i think on twitter and i pitched painting Quaid violet and a lot of people said well this has got a good premise you know mm. and i started reworking the project so by then it had been through many edits but I had shelved the project and it was heartbreaking at the time because I had taken it out, worked on it, pitched it, rejected again and again and again mm. until, until last year when it finally got published. So, you know, that's another thing. Publishing is changing all the time. Don't give up on a project. Mm. Um, you never know when the climate shifts or there's something that, um, that there's a requirement for, for your kind of story and it, it could sell. And uh, you've uh, mentioned earlier that, um, Middle Eastern and Asian fiction is an unpopular genre. Perhaps it's becoming less of an unpopular genre. Uh, but you've also mentioned in what you said just now, um, I think you, you use the term women's issues. Do you, do you perceive books about women's issues to be 
an unpopular genre? Is it becoming more popular? Is it not even a genre? I think it's definitely gaining more momentum in the sense that now the issues are more broader. You know, we're talking about um, adopting children or, uh, you know, problems with, uh, you know, spouses. You're talking Mm. about uh, problems with infertility. There are so many topics that are being covered in women's fiction right now that I think 10 years ago, nobody would have wanted to talk about. And today, women's fiction is very diverse. I mean, you could have chick lit, you could have misery lit, you could have, you know, it's, it's, just, it's just exploded. And uh, today, there's a bigger market for um, more authentic women's fiction, I think. Mm. And I think it's only going to get better and bigger. I'm I'm sure you're right, and um, and I think the appetite for authentic voices in that context is probably growing as well. Which obviously you can you can bring that to to with with your experiences. Um, now I want to talk to you a little bit about some of your other writings. So you've written some novellas as well, like Soulmates, for example. Um, can you tell us a little bit about those? What they're about? What you learned from writing them? That kind of thing. Well, Soulmates was basically the first book I wrote, and it was a competition that I'd entered. And they said they wanted Asian romance. And that's how I ended up writing, you know, romances. Mm. And I ended up writing multicultural romances because that's all I knew. (laughs) So that's that's how I got started writing um, Soulmates. And Soulmates is about an Indian woman who travels to South Korea and falls in love and and a lot of the romances that I've written have always been multicultural, have been in different places that I've traveled to. Yeah. So um, that's that's mostly been my writing where, where it comes to romances. They've been contemporary, they've been sweet, they've been um, multicultural. Hmm. I, I guess we should add that um, the soul in Soulmates is S-E-O-U-L, as in Soul Korea. Uh, yes. <laughs> um, if, if anybody goes and looks that up, they can see see a nice little play on words there. Um, it, it looks as if romance is quite a thread that runs through a lot of your work. Um, what? Why do you think you're uh, attracted to writing romance? What is it about that? I mean, it's a very broad genre, but what is it about that whole genre that that attracts you as a writer? For me, I think it's the happy ending you know um when it comes to women's fiction you're more realistic you you're you tend to be more i think authentic and i wouldn't mm. say painting quaid violet has uh, an entirely happy ending some people do some people don't mm. okay in the book yeah but in terms of romance everyone always gets a happy ending i mean everyone's happy <laughs> in the end yeah and it makes me happy to think that you know you could craft a story and and there is this kind of um joy that you can create and i'm always uh, almost always amazed because i meet people in real life and i always ask you know how long have you been married how did you fall in love and mm. and there are such amazing stories about how mm. people fall in love it's 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 so bizarre in, in the places they 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 find each other and that amazes me because it makes me think that yeah you can write a romance like that and these things do happen so it sounds as if is a good source of great stories Really, that story, story, and romance are kind of natural partners, aren't they? Or that romance is a good context for interesting and unusual stories. Yeah, yeah, it, not just interesting, but also um, I think joyful. You know, it's yeah something that could could really make your day if you're reading the right <laughs> one. <laughs> um, now, earlier on, we talked a little bit about uh, the fact that you're a, a doctor. 
Um, and I think you're also a freelance medical writer. So I wondered if you could tell us a little bit about how you started doing that and perhaps your, your, your reflections on how a writer with an area of expertise like you can actually start to write in that area. How do, how do you get into that kind of thing? So I started as a freelance medical writer because nobody would hire a fresh graduate out of medical college as a doctor. <laughs> so I needed to pay my debts and my bills. Um, and freelance medical writing was, um, you know, it, it just happened. I mean, I had skills as writing always. I mean, I was writing in college. I was writing in school for the school. Yeah. And I, I do think that you need to have some writing talent to write. But it was something that came very naturally to me. So I did medical writing when I started and it's been 10 years. I've continued doing medical writing. And the good thing about medical writing is that it keeps your skills very sharp as mm. far as writing is concerned. It also keeps me well-read and well-researched. Like I'm on the ball as to what's happening in the medical world. Yes. Um, you know, I read uh, for every paper that I write, I, I probably read maybe 25, 30, 40 different papers. Mm. So mm. that's a lot of reading just to produce one paper. And uh, I, I, that's been a good good way of keeping uh, my writing and reading skills sharp. As far as um, uh, promoting and starting off in, in this field or any niche writing is concerned, I think one of the things you have to do is build a portfolio. Even if you have five pieces where you're published and, you know, you could start, uh, you have to start with peanuts, like write for free yeah, as, as yeah. much as you can. Yeah. And build a portfolio. And once you have that, then keep hustling. I mean, even today, it's been 10 years since I've been medical writing. I've been in medical writing. And even today, I have to pitch. I have to hustle. You know, I have yeah, to try yeah. and get new clients. So it's always like you keep going. You, you can never stop when it comes to freelance writing in that sense. I'm, I've made some assumptions in my own head, I think, about what f freelance medical writing actually is. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about what what that is as well what what is it that you write and how kind of who are your customers how do you get paid how does this work so there are two types of medical writing one is regulatory medical writing and the other is marketing medical writing and oh, okay. uh, i think a sub branch would also be academic medical writing mm -hmm. so i do a lot of marketing medical writing and academic medical writing i don't do regulatory and regulatory stuff is what you write for pharma you know when you're submitting drugs to a the FDA and okay. like a million forms that you need to get ready and medical writers get those forms ready. So I don't do that stuff. I do no. the marketing stuff. I do um, patient uh, reading material, doctor reading material, sure. abstracts, posters, journal submissions, blog posts, articles, um, things like that. Fun stuff. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, so we've talked a little bit about the fiction and the nonfiction that you write. I wonder if you could tell us what you think are the main differences then in terms of style and approach between writing your fiction and doing some more of this, this nonfiction stuff that you do. So my nonfiction is usually uh, Christian nonfiction. And I think there's, when you write nonfiction, you have to do a lot more research. And in, for me, I have to do like a lot more Bible reading. So mm -hmm. I have to do so much of, you know, find the version of the Bible, get the backstory, read a commentary, um, find out what the meaning is, what it is the, the Greek root, the Hebrew root, and then uh, what your reflection is. And so there's a lot more research to doing uh, Christian nonfiction. Whereas with fiction, you can make stuff as you go. <laughs> you don't have to like, you can just write what you want to write. You can make a story up. You can make a character up. Um, if you know the place well, you don't have to research it as much. 
So fiction is more, um, it's more liberal, it's more forgiving, whereas nonfiction, mm. you have to be very exact with what you're okay. So obviously, we had, in terms of nonfiction, we talked about this medical writing that that you're doing. But now you, you, it sounds as if there's something else that you're. So you're, you, I think you call it Christian nonfiction. Can you tell? Just elaborate on that a little bit and tell us what it is that you do there. So I have a series called the Ten Reminders series. So I started with Ten Reminders for the Christian Unemployed. Then I, two years ago, I did Christian uh, Ten Reminders for the uh, Christian Single Women. Uh, I think if possible this year or next year, I'll have 10 reminders for the grieving Christian. So these are like uh, books based on my own Christian walk, what I have learned, the mistakes I've made um, as Mm. a Christian, and then the lessons that I have learned. And then I put them in a 10 reminder format that, you know, you, you read and remind yourself about how you can get through these difficult times of unemployment, of uh, being single and even through grief. So I'm hoping that over the years that will end up being a series through what I experience in life if I ever live that long. But <laughs> uh, in terms of nonfiction, that's the only thing I'm probably going to write. I'm not going to put out, I think, any other books because that's that's a lot in itself. So it sounds as if with that particular avenue in nonfiction avenue, and this might apply to lots of different kinds of nonfiction, you, you are combining some pretty serious research so you get the the kind of the research foundational side of it correct but you're mixing that with your own personal experience in in what you're in the in the work that you're producing is that correct yeah that's true um when i started the the nonfiction, it just happened to be i was talking to my friend and and you know there are some people that you talk to especially spiritually for Mm. guidance and and for Mm. how you go through life and and I thought, you know, when, when she kept talking to me, I said, well, this is great stuff. You know, somebody should tell other people about this because I'm sure there are other people who are going through what I'm going through. And she said, okay, go ahead and write it. And, and, and I ended mm-hmm. up writing the first book and then I ended up writing the second. And I thought, well, there are so many things that I'm learning here and, and I could make or help other people who are going through what I'm going through. Mm-hmm. And, and the research, well, you have to do the research as you as you go because you just can't put stuff out there. It has to be authentic. Mm. And uh, as far as religion is concerned, even more so. Sure, sure. So that's that's how I combine the two of them. So how did you find a publisher for that for that work? For Christian nonfiction, I self-published. Yeah, okay. I didn't go to uh, because it was just a series, and they're very small books. And um, I have like a few people who've approached me and said, you know, they they want to do uh, stuff, but I think with self-publishing, you have more of a free reign. Yes. Especially in terms of religion. I mean, everyone wants wants you to follow their brand of whatever. And uh, (laughs) yeah, no, I'm serious. And, and, you know, people have different ideas. But the thing is, this was something that I I was convicted of. Like I knew that these 10 things could help. And I didn't require, if I hired the right editor and, and got everything done, I knew I could get the story out. So it's it's not something that I'm I'm hoping to win an award for. Or no. I just want to help people and and want them to learn from the mistakes I've made. So that's that's I'm just keeping it very simple. Okay, but your fiction is is traditionally published. You're going you're going the traditional publishing route for that. Then is that yes right? yes. Okay, so you are you are a hybrid author then. You in in a, you are published as as more and more people are. You are <laughs> publishing both. Uh, your both self-publishing and using the traditional publishing route. 
Yeah, I think that's going to be um, the picture for most authors because, um, you know, not all the stories that we write are going to get into the big big five or the no. big 10 or whatever. No. Yeah. No. But they are good stories. And uh, I think there is an audience. And if you find the audience, you might as well get it out there. So, so hybrid authors are going to be the future. And I think when you self-publish, you can do it faster. The, the time frame That's between true. each book is, is much less. That's um, true. So yeah. yeah, you can put out more and, and faster. Yeah. It's clear that you're, you are writing in a variety of different genres and fiction and nonfiction. And, to do that, to to have to write in very different things, has that been a deliberate strategy, or do you simply just write what you feel you want to write? Well, it didn't happen through strategy. I have to say, when I started romances, um, you know, I just started because that's the only thing that was getting accepted at the time. Those were my works at the time, and yeah. since I'm a conservative Catholic, most of my uh, romances were pretty tame, um, and they were sweet, and yeah, and they were contemporary. I mean. I don't think I could possibly write historical stuff, but I ended up writing them and um, gradually I started writing uh, nonfiction as it happened. Yeah. And so what what ended up happening is my audience became, you know, um, sweet, contemporary, Christian, inspirational women. And, and, and automatically this brand got developed and 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 what happened is I started the Christian circle podcast. So automatically my audience got tailored to this yeah, style. Yeah. And, and so, to be honest, in, in women's fiction, I don't write tame stuff. It's very gritty. It's very honest. It's true. But it's the reality. So the audience and the brand automatically happened. They just fell into place and, you know, yeah. got wrapped in a pretty little bow. And now I have this, this audience. And I think I'm going to keep writing, you know, to that audience. So do you think you've got the same people reading both your fiction and your nonfiction? I'm not sure about that because I haven't really seen crossover sales from uh, okay. you know, the okay. nonfiction side to the fiction. Okay. Um, I, I honestly feel that they're, they're separate. You have to develop a different audience. Uh, I'm still not of the opinion that you need to develop like separate brands for nonfiction and fiction. In fact, my podcast... My uh, nonfiction is on the same page as my romances are, and I'm not going to probably shift from that. Because, okay. um, yeah, because I think what I'm writing could serve both the audiences, and I'll keep right. doing that for the next period okay. until I decide otherwise. Okay. Uh, and do you do you see yourself therefore as the brand? Do you see, or, or or how do you how do you perceive that working? I didn't know much about brand until last year, to be honest. Okay. Um, I learned this very late and I, I think that's something authors should think of before they even start writing, you know, think of your brand. Mm. It's, it's small things like think of the colors you're going to use, the mm. pictures you're going to use, mm. the website, the font. I mean, I didn't know all this stuff, but now I do. And, and I realized, oh my goodness, you know, I've, I've made so many mistakes. Doing <laughs> this stuff. Yeah. And I wish someone had told us that, that branding was important. Um, and if they do tell you that branding is important, they don't tell you what, they mean by a brand and so now that i've learned i've realized okay so branding means getting everything together having a home for all your material creating a website doing um you know a, a channel on youtube or whatever and and i don't i still don't have that <laughs> well i guess that we don't all get brand right because it's a lot of hard work isn't it to get it all yeah. out an awful lot of work yeah. In fact, I think I'm spending half the day building the brand than I am writing <laughs> right now. 
<laughs> so it's a lot of work, but it's fun work. And um, I think if you do it right, I think over 10 years, you can be an overnight success. Yeah. <laughs> yes. We're coming to the end of our conversation now, but I wondered if there were any last bits of advice or things that you think are particularly important that you would want to, to say to listeners to my podcast? I would say, you know, help each other in the author community because mm. your readers are actually other authors. I read about 165 books a year. So I read a lot of books. I spend a lot of money buying books. And mm. I would say if you have friends who are authors, they have a book coming out, buy their books, you know, <laughs> read and review them. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah. I find this weird. Authors want free books all the time. And and so it's, it's not helping anyone, you know, when you're not reviewing, you're not reading. Um, you're competing. You can't compete with another author because their their genre, their flavor is different. But we can help each other. And the only people who can help each other are other authors. So mm. I would say the author community needs to get like together instead of fall apart. Okay. Um, so just to finish then, um, how can people find out a little bit more about you and a little bit more about your work? So I have my website, that's uh, PamelaQFernandez.com. I am on Twitter at PamelaQFerns. I'm on Facebook at author Pamela Q. Fernandez. And somebody told me I should start Instagram, which is a <laughs> lot of work. And I'm debating whether to start Instagram. So if you think I should start Instagram, let me know. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess, well, I've recently started using Instagram, not not even particularly to promote my writing. But I, I, I think the only thing I would say about it is if you find that you have a reasonably regular supply of images, because Instagram is all about image, imagery, I think, mm -hmm. then perhaps it's worth it, it, it that you can actually build up a following. Uh, if you've got, if you take pictures, maybe if you enjoy taking pictures or you enjoy visual things, then Instagram might be right for you. Okay. And how do you divide your the line between oversharing and undersharing there? Oh, um, well, I, I tend to think, I suppose, if, is this something, if, if I see an image and I think, is this something that actually I might be quite interested to see? I mean, on Instagram, people look at an image on Instagram, it takes them a couple of seconds, they might like it, they might not, and they move on. So it's not a, it's not a very resource intensive thing. But if I see an image, and I think it's quite a nice image, I, I'm, I'm, I might decide to share it. Um, the other thing I would say about, for me personally, with these images is it's like a lot of things. Actually, it's worth, if you're going to do it seriously, it's worth taking just a little bit of time to get the image right. So maybe you do need to edit it slightly. Maybe you need to crop it a little <laughs> bit. And I know this all sounds like terrible hard work, uh, <laughs> but it's just it's it, it if you were writing you would do 16 edits on your book as some you know as somebody <laughs> said uh, it, it's it's the same thing i think with anything that you produce even though it's, it's all dreadful because it takes forever yeah. it's like if you write a twitter don't just write it and bang it out it's think about what you've written and think about maybe editing it a little bit just before you put it out think about the image that you create before you before you share it with people it, it's okay. it's stuff like that, <laughs> but but I suppose I mean uh, people I've heard people on when it comes to social media and and writers say to me you know just just do what you enjoy doing as well and yeah. don't try and be on too many platforms. So it may be for for you or for other people, Instagram is one platform too many. If it's just a chore, then don't do it. 
Okay. <laughs> I'm actually thinking of culling Facebook. I mean, I, I don't like it at all. Uh, lots of, there are lots of authors who don't go on Facebook. I, I, don't, I don't think it's a desperately good medium, in my own personal experience, desperately good medium for writers. Um, I, I think it's fine for sharing things with friends and, and uh, that kind of thing. But I'm not convinced by it as a medium for sharing if you're a writer. Not mm. completely convinced at all by that. Okay. I know there's a huge market in terms of Facebook ads and you can use Yeah, them. yeah. And it may be that actually you could make a conscious decision as a writer to use Facebook ads and you can see whether that's working for you and do all that kind of stuff. But just using Facebook just to put stuff out, I'm, I'm, I'm not convinced. I've done the ads and it's not really, um, you need to spend a lot of time and a lot of money to get it just right. And I don't have the budget or the time to do that. Mm. I mean, it's, you're more successful doing the 99 cent deal than you are getting an ad out yeah. on Facebook. Yeah. yeah. And I've, I've tried the, um, I've tried Amazon ads and had some success with those. Okay. Um, so, Is I it think, the new one or have you done it with the old one? Um, well, I, I, I've done it. I did them last year. Oh, okay. So okay. Probably the old one, I think. Yeah. Um, yeah. They do. What I find is that you can put an ad and it is quite successful for a while and then it drops off and you have to keep coming back and yeah. reviewing your keywords and reviewing yeah. <laughs> all of the sort of stuff to do with it. Um, but they do, I think particularly for um, books that are higher price, so bigger ticket books, um, there is there is the scope to experiment a little bit with Amazon ads and okay. to try them out. Um, okay. That's just my own, that's my own personal experience. I have, so I've done it with, uh, there's, a, there's a book that I've put out from the, for this from this podcast, which is so it's a bigger you know it's, it's like fifteen fifteen dollars to buy it. So there's a little bit of leeway in that price for me to experiment with Amazon ads. So yeah, there you go. <laughs> is there is there anything else that you wanted to say, Pamela, before we finish at all? No, no, no. I've taken I think five minutes extra of your time. <laughs> it's fine. That's okay. Well, that that's been, it's been a good conversation, and Pamela, thank you so much your time it's been interesting just to hear a different perspective i think to hear a perspective from somebody who's come from a different culture thank you andy for having me at your podcast and uh for inviting me no you're <laughs> very welcome giving me a chance to talk so thank you so much and all the best with your future book in the summer thank you very so much all the best yeah okay thanks, thanks. okay yeah bye-bye <laughs> Thank you for listening to the Creative Writers Toolbelt podcast. If you want to find out more about the podcast or me, just go to my website. It's andrewjchamberlain.com. Hold up. 